Escape velocity. big fan of the Toronto Maple Leafs, aren't you, Chris? Well, I was pleasantly surprised to see this latest news. Have you seen this? Well, you know this Forces Appreciation Night. This is a thing that they do at hockey games. Mm-hmm. They have Canadian Forces Appreciation Night where they ask season ticket holders to give up tickets. So uh, military personnel mm-hmm. who presumably have served overseas in one of our one of our humanitarian interventions. Right. Uh, can sit down for a couple hours and drink $9 beers and watch the Leafs get their asses kicked. Well, I saw a news update on the Maple Leafs website the other week, and it said that they are going to, in their Canadian Forces Appreciation Nights, going to start honoring not only the soldiers who go to war, but the Afghan civilians who die in war at the hands of Canadian Forces. So they're going to start honoring the civilian victims of war. Civilian victims of war. Yeah, I thought that was uh, I thought it was a pretty progressive step for a hockey club to take. Uh, did you think that was real, Derek, for more than one nanosecond? Oh no, people did. People. Oh, be- I'm sure people did. People thought that was real for more than a second. But of course, no. Of course, it was fake. I think I might have blown the, the momentum of that gag on Twitter. Because as soon as it was forwarded to me by about 20 people, I just read the headline and started laughing because I knew it was a joke. Yeah. Yeah, it was a joke. Well, it was it was a piece of political satire. Mm-hmm. It turns out this was a project put together by Riaz Sayani Mulji and Samira Syed Rahman and an anonymous web developer who started a group called Sports Without War. And uh, they're from Hamilton, Ontario. Are you the web developer? No, I'm not. Yeah, you are. I'm not. It wasn't you? Oh, I did a better job than this. (laughs) I'm the web developer. (laughs) I used PageMail 3.0. No, this was was put together by by their group, Sports Without War. They're from Hamilton, Ontario. Yeah, they put this together as a piece of political satire to show, obviously, what maybe we should be seeing at a Forces Appreciation Night, Mm -hmm. recognizing that... Granted, there can be serious life implications for people in the military who go overseas at our government's behest. But by far, the greater toll in war is that of the victimized population and that we should be acknowledging that. So I thought I thought it was a pretty clever little uh, social media engineering stunt. Yeah, it was good because it, it showed that there is, I mean, there was a an immediate groundswell of support. Mm-hmm. People liked it, even people who are relatively conventional, anthem-standing, forces-appreciating people kind of were like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. But then, of course, Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment didn't respond. Yeah. It was just summarily ignored by the prevailing hockey order. Yeah. And uh, will always be because sports is the mouthpiece of the system, and the system loves war. It's true. So there you go. Speaking of sports being the most piece of... Most piece? Squeak. 
speaking as we record this, we are in the midst of the 2014 Winter Olympics in, in Sochi, Sochi, Russia. Russia. I mean, the Olympics. What better time to discuss the Olympics? I, I, I would bet that a slightly better time would have been last month's episode. So it actually came out before the Olympics, not after the Olympics are over, which is like this one is going That's to That's true, but we needed an interim report. So who did we go to for that interim report? Well... Unlike your shitty podcasts, we went to an actual Olympic athlete That's named true. Jules Boykoff. Who is, who is Jules Boykoff? Did he formerly play professional soccer and represent the U.S. Olympic soccer team? He most certainly did. Is he the author of two books on the Olympics, Celebration Capitalism and the Olympic Games, and Activism and the Olympics, Descent at the Games in Vancouver and London? He most certainly is. Does he hold a PhD in political science from American University? And does he currently teach political science at Pacific University in Oregon? He most certainly does. Oh, I'm thinking of someone else then. Oh. Jules, as we speak, the most expensive Winter Olympics in history are now in full swing. I'm wondering, you as an athlete and a progressive thinker, at what point on the continuum are you between shedding tears of joy at human excellence and tears of sadness at human folly? <laughs> well, I think you just captured it right there. I mean, the athletics is amazing, and I think we can appreciate the, the amazing athletes that have gone to Sochi to show us their stuff while at the same time kind of wondering what's going on here. There's a there's an activist based in Vancouver named Am Johal who once told me when I was interviewing him a few years back that the Olympics are a corporate franchise that you buy with public money. And we're definitely seeing that in Russia. We saw it in London 2012 and we, we saw it in Vancouver before that. So, you know, that kind of tradition as an athlete I, I find abhorrent. And it's actually not really that necessary either. So what are, the, what are some of the highlights then as far as individual performances for you so far? Well, let me just say, I have, I have to say I like the snowboarding and I kind of just like the general energy of the snowboarders. I think it's fascinating how they actually capture what I think a lot of us view as the Olympic spirit of, of camaraderie. Definitely they're competing, but afterward they get along so well. I mean, and, and the whole lingo I find really interesting as well. So, I mean, I've just enjoyed watching the snowboarders interact with each other and congratulate each other when, when they win medals. I think it's really fantastic. Other athletes who I've enjoyed, I mean, from a political perspective, I thought it was amazing when Cheryl Moss, the, she came down, she, the, the Dutch athlete who showed us her after coming down the run of on her ski run she whipped out these awesome rainbow gloves replete with stylish unicorn on them so right. i thought that was a pretty awesome political gesture and then uh, there is a snowboarder from russia as well who after he he came down the the hill he laid down on his side and pointed to his snowboard which had a picture that was unmistakably an allusion to Pussy Riot, a person right. of Balaclava. That was Alexei Sobolev. So, um, you know, from a political perspective, I think that's great. You know, from an athlete perspective, just sheer athletics, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing some good hockey. My family and I have been enjoying curling. What a wacky sport that is. And <laughs> I just think it's kind of crazy. Who thought of that one? But, um, 
So yeah, I mean, there's been a lot to to appreciate from the athletic perspective. But you know, I, my mind always kind of takes me toward the uh, politics too, and I'm I'm hoping we'll see more of that kind of athlete activism, like Cheryl Moss did and Alexei Soboloff, the Russian snowboarder. Right. Okay. So those are some of the highlights. Let's talk about some of the lowlights. You have a a new book out called Celebration Capitalism and the Olympic Games. What do you mean by the term celebration capitalism? Sure. Well, I mean, I guess to start with, it's a response to Naomi Klein's disaster capitalism. And she talks about how when there's a disaster like a hurricane or financial collapse or what have you, capitalists swoop in and capitalize off the catastrophe and they install neoliberal capitalism on steroids by which she means deregulation getting rid of regulations privatizing everything with a pulse she calls it free market fundamentalism and while i think she's absolutely correct when it comes to a lot of the way capitalism functions i also argue in that book you mentioned that capitalism is a nimble shapeshifter and it takes different forms in different moments and sometimes it absolutely takes the form of disaster capitalism like she writes about but sometimes it takes the form of celebration capitalism so what is it i mean they both occur in state of exceptions for klein disaster capitalism is all about a state of exception that's perilous and we're in a crisis of some sort whereas i argue with celebration capitalism it's also a state of exception where the normal rules of politics are suspended temporarily but it's all about social social celebration. So the Olympics are kind of the quintessence of that, good example of it. The World Cup's an example. Building a stadium in North America, primarily the United States, would be an example. When I was over living in, in London, the, the example of the Queen's Jubilee, sort of public-funded efforts to create a social celebration. Mm-hmm. Now, whereas she talks about with uh, disaster capitalism, that it's about neoliberalism, I argue that with celebration capitalism, it's actually not about privatization. It's not necessarily about deregulation. Instead, what you get are these sort of pseudo-public-private partnerships, but they're, they're pseudo because the public tends to pay and the private entities involved tend to profit. So if you look at the Olympics, like I said to you at the outset with Am Joe Hall saying it's a corporate franchise you buy with public money, that's sort of like the slogan, I guess you might say, for, for celebration capitalism. Taxpayers are footing the bill, and these private companies, you know, Adidas and, and whatnot, some of the worldwide corporate sponsors, walk away looking pretty after basking in the Olympic glow. So we're at $51 billion for the price tag? <clears throat> yeah, I mean... And of course, we should remember that originally it was supposed to be somewhere between 10.3 billion and 12 billion, which is plenty to begin with. But you know, the the price tag catapults as it always does with the Olympics. The the journalist Bob Mackin from Vancouver compared these bid books that these host cities put forth to Etch-a-Sketch pads, and I think he's right. You win the bid and you just shake them up, and all of a sudden a new p- a number pops out on the other side. So, you know, Sochi from 12 billion, let's just say, to more than 50 billion, uh, that's crazy. And I think the, the backdrop for what's going on in Russia that, that makes it unique to other places, the backdrop is the sort of Yeltsin years, the oligarchic bacchanalia known as the Yeltsin years, where you had these tycoons racking up billions of dollars. And now uh, Putin's calling them in and saying, hey, you give us millions and we'll let you keep your billions. And it's sort of like repression insurance, I guess, for these for these tycoons, where they're just handing over millions to support 
the Olympics in exchange for not becoming the next Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who's uh, the, the tycoon who was thrown in jail kind of on dodgy circumstances and just was released right before the Olympic Games. So, yeah, we've seen incredible graft. I mean, you know, $51 billion. Some people have estimated that $30 billion of those dollars have been skimmed away in the, in the form of corruption. I mean, it's just incredible what's going on. To put it in perspective, the previous Winter Games, some people have been saying, the ones in Vancouver, some people have been saying they cost about $7.4 billion. I've seen upwards of, of $8 billion. But, I mean, geez, they, they spent that on one single road that connects the Olympic Village to the, the Alpine ski events. One single road cost more than the entire Vancouver Olympics. So it's pretty amazing the amount of resources that are being put into this event. You're also saying that this $51 billion price tag isn't just on the taxpayers' shoulders? Yeah, in Russia it takes a unique form. Okay, let, let's get into it a little bit because it isn't totally on the taxpayer shoulders in Russia. It's, but still, it's very much on the taxpayer shoulders, let's be clear, because there was a recent study put forth by anti-corruption activists in Russia that estimated that about 4% of the overall cost of the games, 4%, was coming from private sources. So just four. So 96% is coming from like the state bank and uh, state taxpayer coffers. So there's been this incredible input from the Russian government to to make this thing happen. You know, I should just jump back to the the lightning rod issue that I think most people identify with these Olympics, and that's Russian policy towards the LGBT community. I have noted that while a lot of people prior to the games called for a boycott, I noticed a lot of people connected to sports didn't agree with the call for a boycott. Why is that? Well, you know, I think that the reason why you're seeing athletes or people connected to sports saying, no, let's not do a boycott, is because it really would hurt the athletes. It's painful to see an athlete train for all that time, dedicate herself or himself to their sport for all that time, and only to have a politician pull it away, pull out the rug right before the event. Secondly, I think that in regards to 1968, let's look at the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City, where we famously had John Carlos and Tommy Smith thrust their black glove fists into the Mexico City sky, that kind of iconic moment of political activism. What would have happened if they would have boycotted the Olympics? There was actually a lot of talk of boycott around that time, and they were involved in those talks. Kareem Abdul-Jamar, then known as Lou Alcindor, decided to skip the Olympics because he didn't want any of that, have to do anything with that. Do we talk about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in regards to 1968? No. Do we talk about Carlos and Smith? Absolutely. It's an an iconic moment from history, not just sports history, but history in general. But where I do think we should be thinking about uh, boycott is in regards to fans who are thinking about attending the Olympics. I wouldn't want the athletes to have to skip the opportunity to engage in principled activism or just to do their thing sports-wise. But if you're a tourist, I would think long and hard about whether you want to go to these Olympics and give your money over to a country that basically, not basically, totally discriminates against LGBTQ communities. So I think that a boycott of spectators is totally in order. The IOC, of course, prohibits athletes from political protest what sort of penalties would an athlete face for for doing something like holding up a rainbow flag or something like that well it's possible that the international olympic committee would come down really hard on them let's not forget carlos and smith in 68 they were kicked out of the olympic village and sent home early 
they did get to keep their medals. That's one of the sort of inaccurate myths of the period. They did get to keep their medals. They weren't taken away. But we could see that with an athlete today getting sent home, kicked out of the Olympic Village, you know, sent home in disgrace, if you will. So that that is a, a very real possibility. And, and let me be clear. I, I'm not suggesting that athletes should engage in just activism willy-nilly for the heck of it. I think we have to look at the wider picture here. I mean, the whole goal is will will Russian LGBTQ people on the ground in Russia be better off after the Olympic juggernaut sails off to the next site, which happens to be Rio in Brazil? Will they be better off by your actions? If you do something that could hurt people on the ground, uh, then you shouldn't do it. On the other hand, I mean, I think that activists have a lot of leeway to take action here. Many of the people who are who are athletes are coming from countries where you can be in a same-sex relationship legally as uh, officialized by the state even. And so it just doesn't compute for some of them when they show up in Russia, Russia and you have this propaganda law that says that you can't talk about homosexuality to people who are minors and that sort of thing, and this sort of ridiculous equation of homosexuality with pedophilia that Putin has been pushing in the lead-up to the game. So with that in mind, I think there's going to be some athletes who just show up and say, this doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I happen to think there's less for an athlete to lose today with this issue, at least if they're coming from a place where where it's accepted to be in a homosexual relationship, same-sex couples. There's less of a risk today. You know, we have a couple precursors for what the International Olympic Committee has done to athletes who have engaged in some sort of activism. At London 2012, there was an Aboriginal boxer from Australia mm-hmm. who wore a T-shirt that was of the Aboriginal flag. And that was a big no-no because it was seen as a political expression inside of a competition venue. But he backed off the athlete and said, oh, you know, it was just pride in, in, my, in my background and my culture. And, and the IOC basically just kind of let him off the hook. They just let it slide. So I think that we could see the IOC letting a lot of stuff slide. Let's not forget uh, Thomas Bach, who's the president of the International Olympic Committee. In the lead-up to the Games, he said that it would actually be okay for athletes to talk about equality in regards to LGBT peoples in press conferences. He, he stood by that rule that you mentioned in the Olympic Charter that says you can't speak out during competitions or when you're on the medal stand, but that's just baked into the Olympic Charter. He was just rehashing that. But he did give a little bit of space for athletes to speak out at press conferences. And I think that's pretty interesting. And it shows that that movements who've been pressing for change in the United States, in Europe, in Russia, and elsewhere have really created some space, in Canada as well, absolutely, that created some space for Thomas Bach to feel like he has to say something like that. Okay, what about athletes and the private sector? During the opening ceremonies, I spied a string of commercials featuring Canadian athletes in idyllic settings, touting the benefits of these petrochemical companies that are underwriting their training. Are they indentured servants of these corporations that seem to dominate uh, sport now? Well, unfortunately, with some of these sports where it's really difficult to make money, a lot of these athletes really need to be subservient to their corporate sponsors to make it. This was brought to a fore by an athlete who I think deserves a lot of credit. Her name is Samantha Retrossi. She participated in the 2006 Winter Olympics in Turin, and she was a luge athlete. 
And she talked about, and she came out recently and wrote this really powerful essay comparing the Olympics to the Hunger Games and how she was, like the people in the Hunger Games, sort of beholden to the sponsors to keep her alive and to keep her athletic career alive. And she was responsible to Verizon, and she had to say all these positive things about Verizon all the time. There's, there's a big difference between somebody like Samantha Retrossi, who's a luge athlete from the United States, and, like, say, a summer Olympic athlete like LeBron James who can roll in. There's a big difference between those people. And, you know, it sort of makes me sad when I see athletes that are basically being these indentured servants, as, as you put it. Um, and especially when they're for these fossil fuel companies. It's sickening. I mean, it's like incredible greenwashing. But at the same time, you know, I understand where the athlete is probably coming from. They're just trying to make it to their make, make their Olympic dream happen and the corporation seems to be the way to go especially in the united states where our our u.s government federal government doesn't sponsor the athletics like other countries tend to sponsor their olympic sports and so they have to turn to these corporations but you know in terms of these fossil fuel companies it really does make me sick like take a look at london 2012 the they started this new sponsorship program called the sustainability partners and of the, they had six special sustainability partners at London 2012, and one of them was BP. I mean, seriously, BP, right? This is not too far after the disaster in the Gulf of Mexico in April 2010. And so, you know, when you, when you have that kind of egregious in-your-face greenwashing, it kind of just makes the whole sustainability thing turn into a bit of a joke. I mean, actually, the, the, the six sponsors were were BP, BMW, this car manufacturer, BT, Cisco, General Electric, and then EDF Energy. I mean, EDF Energy is all about nuclear power. You know, there's a, there's a Toronto media firm that just recently listed what they saw as the top 100 companies in terms of sustainability. And of London's sustainability partners, only Cisco appeared on the list. And so, I mean, it's just total straight-up greenwashing. And so to see athletes kind of folded into that seamy, schmaltzy greenwashing is, is painful for me, you know, especially, I guess, as a former athlete. I, I can feel for them. So what would the alternative be for somebody who wants to pursue elite athletics but doesn't want to be part of that? Are there alternatives, or is it just too far gone now? Well, the alternative is to become Mitt Romney's horse, Rafalka. <laughs> because, uh, he, as maybe some of your listeners know, Mitt Romney and his wife, Ann Romney, had a horse called Rafalka, who competed at the 2012 London Olympics. But um, in all seriousness, no, you, you've pointed to a real, a real problem for, for athletes. Like, how do, they, how do they get the money together, aside from being independently wealthy like a Romney or something? Um, and it's very difficult. There are very few avenues. I mean, and so, yeah, that's why you see the sort of corporate sponsorship taking hold. You mentioned you're looking forward to the men's hockey tournament. I watched the last night of the NHL schedule before the Olympic break, and one of the commentators noted that Phil Kessel and James Van Riemsdyk's families weren't going to be attending the games. They weren't flying over to watch their sons play for gold, presumably because of security concerns. What is it that Russia has done to foment credible terrorist threats? Well, I mean, in the first place, I mean, they've decided to plunk the Olympics down in a geopolitical tinderbox. I mean, it's, it's a region rife with uh, anti-Russia sentiment, let's just say. 25 kilometers from Abkhazia, where, which is a disputed zone with, with Georgia, 
and Dagestan's nearby Chechnya and Gushetia, where where anti-Russian sentiment roils. I mean, it's just it's just everywhere. Um, so what have they done? To, well, I mean, another thing that I think needs to get a little bit more attention is there's been the threat of, of terrorism, absolutely, and that's gotten tons of media attention. And this guy. Doku Umarov, he's sort of a high-profile Chechen rebel who may or may not be alive right now. It's hard to know, but he he asked his fellow militants to do their utmost to derail the Olympics, which he views as satanic dances on the bones of his ancestors, right? But where I think that there's people that could get a little bit more media play who have a, have a real serious grievance is the Circassian people who were... Purged. I mean, it was a genocide by Tsar Nicholas II in the 1860s. They were sent into diaspora uh, to live all around from New Jersey to Syria to Turkey to Lebanon, and and now they're they're trying to raise up this history. So there's there's just layer upon layer of problems with with Russian history that make this uh, decision to put the Olympics right here a pretty dodgy one, really. And that's why you've had to see Russia put. 70,000 or so, the estimate I've seen recently, 70,000 or so security officials spread out through the mountain region. And, and let's be clear, Sochi covers a very, the, the Sochi Olympic venues, the sites, cover a very small geographical space, I mean, compared to previous Olympics that are more spread out around a city. So they've just put this, this zone in lockdown. And a lot of security experts have raised questions about, okay, you're putting all these tens of thousands of security forces in the Sochi area, you might make Sochi safe, but what about, you know, eastern Siberia, where you've pulled these security officials? Have you opened up spaces for people to move in and do things, you know, terrorist acts and that sort of thing? I think that's a reasonable question to ask. Uh, Speaking of Sochi itself, will there be an economic benefit to the region uh, in the coming years, or is that just a central myth sold to the, the populace? Well, don't take it from me. Take it from Moody's Investor Services, who issued a report in early February that said that this is not a money-making proposition. Uh, There's not going to be the touristic dollars and taxes and fees that they're going to collect. They're going to be able to cover the budget down the road. So this is one of the central myths around Olympism, is that it's going to create this amazing legacy of sport and development and all this sort of thing. And again, this sort of makes me sad because, you know, the general population kind of gets hoodwinked here because you have all these politicians across the political spectrum agreeing that the Olympics are going to bring this huge financial financial boom, this major uptick to your city. And in reality, if you talk to independent academic economists, they'll, they'll say across the board that that is a myth. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why it's a myth. I mean, for starters, there's something that economists call the the substitution effect. Just because the Olympics come to your town doesn't mean you get this all of a sudden magical rise in your income. If you decide to go to Sochi and spend your money there, you're not spending it in your local pub, your local cafe, and that sort of thing. So you substitute your spending there, and it doesn't happen at home. And and there's also the whole point that some some economists and, and sociologists have made is that people who go to the Olympics spend differently than other people who are tourists in a place. So regular tourists, if you will, tend to go out to dinner more, whereas Olympic tourists tend to go to watch the events all day and stay inside the venue and and get the food and whatnot there and then return to their hotels at night. 
And so when you substitute these Olympic tourists in for regular tourists who might have been there otherwise, say in London, you're actually seeing a decrease in the amount of money circulating in the economy. And so, I mean, we can get deep into the weeds on that, but the bottom line is that when it comes to Olympic economics, it's a total hoax that it's going to float all boats. And, and it's gonna, that's, there's been no evidence that I've seen from independent economists that Sochi is going to be some big boon for the region. Stripped of all this bullshit, what is the essence of the Olympics that you think has value for our society? I presume you're still a huge fan and you're watching, right? Yeah, no, I mean... I think there's there's a lot of value um, in the Olympics still. I mean, if you read the Olympic Charter, it sounds great. There's a lot to really like about equality and competition, but friendly camaraderie in, in, through competition. It's just a matter of making that Olympic Charter real on the ground. And, I mean, I hate to say it, but the International Olympic Committee just really failed in that job, and they've, they've sort of set their moral compass to the dollar sign but I still think there's a lot to really appreciate about about the Olympics. And there's a lot of possibility, too. I mean, if if a host city were to have a little bit more leverage with the International Olympic Committee, they could get a much better deal contract-wise, and they could possibly use it as a development tool. Right now, it's basically sort of a rigged economy to help the rich get richer. The, the Olympics is a vehicle for that. But there's there's no reason why cities couldn't sort of band together and say we're not going to host the olympics unless uh, we can get a better deal for our people you could you for example you could say with the olympic village that gets built now in in every olympics to house the athletes you could say with the olympic village this is going to be turned over for social housing afterwards unfortunately one of the myths of the olympics is that when the lead up to the games they say oh it's going to be for social housing it'll be for mixed housing what have you. Um, but then when push comes to shove, they say, oh, we're going to lose so much money on the project, we have to leave it, the, the Olympic Village, and sell units at market value. But we, you could write it right into the agreement at the beginning that actually this is going to be housing for people who actually need new housing. You could use the Olympics as a sort of um, lever, if you will, for creating the city's local workforce to be employed at, at a living wage instead of right now where they're almost inevitably uh, they're almost inevitably employed below living wage there's been incredible wage theft actually at, in Russia uh, you could actually enforce environmental standards I mean that's another one of the big pillars of Olympism is the environment and we've seen incredible devastation of pristine areas in Russia, and I should say also in Vancouver, when they built the Sea to Sky Highway connecting Whistler to Vancouver, uh, there's incredible destruction. But there's no reason why it couldn't be written in to have real deal sustainability instead of the greenwashing we were talking about before. I also think you could democratize the games in a way that would amplify that sort of camaraderie and spirit and involve more people. You know, I've often said, why not bring back the tug of war? We, that was a big sport, actually, in the early 1900s, where countries from all around the world competed. All you need is a rope and some muscly people. And it's it's not like equestrian, no disrespect to the Romney's horse, Rafalka, where it costs like 70000 U.S. dollars to keep them in a stable and keep them fed and trained and all that stuff per year. Most countries can't or don't even want to put forth a, a horse for dressage, or I guess it's like horse ballet, basically. But I'll bet you'd have a lot of countries that could actually do pretty well in the tug-of-war. So the, <laughs> the point is that 
the International Olympic Committee could democratize sport in ways that would involve more countries. I mean, look at how many countries are involved in the Winter Olympics. Not that many. Hey, we could have the tug of war on ice. That'd be kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Just came up with that one. But hey, with, with the, the point is, with, with a jolt of creativity and, and visions, the, the Olympics could be a whole lot more democratic. It could be a lot more egalitarian. Well, how do you get the IOC to listen? What can the average sports fan do to make the IOC adopt some of these or even consider some of these ideas? Well, we'll get to the average sports fan, but, but in, in, in a, at the level of sort of elites, it would have to be host cities banding together. And then within each host city, that's where the sort of average sports fan comes in because there have been a lot of movements recently in cities that have put forth the idea that they want to host the games. A lot of cities have had their citizens rise up and say, hey, we, we're not going to fall prey to these myths, and we're actually going to say no to the games unless we get a better deal. And, and so I think that they'd have to be host cities together collectively so that you'd avoid the race to the bottom. And they, they say, you know, we're not going to just sign on to any old Olympic agreement here we'd have to have it be much more equitable in terms of input and not have it be just a taxpayer-funded kind of enterprise. Um, and then have, have citizen movements from the ground up pressuring host cities. And if they don't want to go along with it, then they're going to have to stop the, the host city from putting forth a bid, as happened recently in Stockholm, for example, in Sweden. The elite in Stockholm wanted to put forth a bid, but citizens rose up, fought back, and said, no, we actually don't want to host the Olympics in, in the current arrangement. If you had enough cities that did that, you'd have leverage. And, and the sort of historical example of a city with leverage that did almost really whatever it wanted was 1984 and the Los Angeles Olympics because nobody bid on the 1984 Olympics except Los Angeles. So they got it, and they had incredible leverage over the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, because the IOC had no other uh, places they could host the games. So what did L.A. do? Not, not what I would have done personally or politically. I mean, they basically privatized the heck out of the games and, and that sort of thing and made it sort of a Trojan horse for, for neoliberal capitalism. But... But, I mean, they could have gone the other direction, and, and a city could absolutely do that and insist that the Olympics actually live up to the ideas in its Olympic charter. So you still have hope? I do. I mean, I'm not, like, starry-eyed thinking it's going to happen, you know, super soon. I think there's a lot of changes that could happen within the Olympic movement that could strengthen it. But in terms of the bigger picture, that's, that's a longer-haul battle that will involve lots of different people in lots of different cities saying enough's enough. Finally, Jules, do you still have a business relationship with Palermo Pizza of Milwaukee? <laughs> you know, you, you dug up that Papa Palermo commercial. <laughs> Let me just say to your listeners who know about the labor strife that Papa Palermo has been experiencing in recent years, that my relationship with the Papa Palermo's pizza company extended from 1993 to 1994, many years before the awful <laughs> labor practices they put forth in more recent years. Well, outside of the labor practices, I have to say you had killer hair. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's one way of putting it. I, I would say um, I was doing my best to put the mull in mullet, like um, mullet over, dude, before you <laughs> wear that hairdo. But hey, I'm glad you liked it, Chris. That's great. All right, Jules, thanks a lot for being with us today. I appreciate it. All right, thank you. 
So that was Jules Boykoff. Very good. I like that interview, Chris. Well done. Did you watch the Palermo pizza commercial? I did watch the Palermo pizza commercial. It's awesome. And don't you wish you had hair like that? I wish I had hair at all. You're not going to lose your hair. That's so weird. You, you, yeah, but I can't grow it like that. You will have hair until you die. No, it's slowly creeping back. It's like a glacier. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I really want to read Jules' book now. Yes. I embarrassingly hadn't read it before this. Who has time to read books anymore? I'm too busy listening to podcasts. Yeah, I certainly don't. But, you know, this is the second sports-oriented guest we've had on the show. True. And I'm starting to think it's more and more important to intertwine that in our format. Mm -hmm. Because I think often people on the progressive side of the continuum often out of hand discount sports. Guilty. Or, Or you, for example. No, you, maybe a bit. Yeah. Or... It's not in my culture. But it should be. Yeah. I've always been involved in sports but I, I had a period from the early 90s to the early 2000s where i threw it out the door those were the best early 90s to the early 2000s <laughs> those were the best years but you know because i i didn't i no longer saw sport aligned with my value system right. and it's still not or yeah. the organized sports that i pay money to enjoy right or spend my whittle away my hours of my life watching yeah in most ways don't reflect my cultural values. Right. But the point is we must change and reshape those sports, mm-hmm. whether it's down the street at the rink or it's these fucking corporations that uh, take our money and then sicken us with their pregame fucking pro-military pro-military yep. appreciation night bullshit or all these Olympic games that are just a, as he says, just a, you know, a shallow corporate cash grab. Yeah, and it's funny while you're saying that I'm thinking because I'm thinking about sports and I'm also thinking about religion at the same time which is something that we've talked about seems like quite a bit recently and these are if you are to survey humanity and look at what are the they're cross-cultural they're prevalent those in are, every they, they are cross-cultural and they are the most dominant areas of focus but sports is better for it's humanity. more fun it's more awesome than yes religion. and i yeah perhaps sports has more potential for awesomeness totally for radical bodaciousness you can't take a fucking religious slap shot well you can't fucking uh go roof daddy on jesus roof daddy i don't even know what that is you can't go bar down on buddha you can't go five hole on muhammad yeah Sports, very important. <laughs> I did have some. Um, I, I think I, so. I had some. Oh, sort of follow up thoughts on. Yeah, on Jules' comments. Yeah, the first, which is perhaps it is obvious, but it is still I can't wrap my head around it. Is how unfathomable the amount of money spent is, like on on the game on the on production the, on the production of the games. Like when you when you think about how cost how economics are used over and over again to shut down any and everything that would make anything better. So whether it's the lives of the the poor or the, or the disadvantaged or implementing new technologies in order to reduce carbon emissions or any, everything, cost is always the cited factor. And here we are, $51 billion being spent which like he's saying even moody's is saying 
you know, as a, as an economic, as a rating for the investment versus payoff is like totally in the, in the red for the general public for the general public but for yeah. the, for private investors the private investors of course they uh, they walk the away Russian they example. walk away making a mint so <clears throat> perhaps that is just par for the course but when you when put in this on this scale you know it just it just seems it is so obscene yeah you know but people just get more excited about the oh that must be it's gonna be yeah. awesome i bet the fireworks will be great it's like Oh, Nelly Furtado is coming to the MTS Center, and I heard she spent $17 million on the light show. <laughs> I'm going to go. Do you like Nelly Furtado? I'm not really familiar with her stuff, but it's going to be a great show. Man, that's going to be a show. Yeah, it's true. Fuck, it's true. God of course damn it. it's true. I'd like to go see that show. Um, the other thing, you were asking him about the corporate sponsorship yes. of the athletes. And it was interesting, but, you know, on one level, I empathize. You know, he's saying it's really tough for athletes. If you want to be a professional athlete, mm-hmm. if your life dream is to reach the Olympics, especially depending on what country you come from, you don't have a lot of options. Like, how are you going to make a living of it, right? Mm-hmm. How are you going to make that work? But on the other hand, what if we applied this to other areas? Like, we we talk about corporate sponsorship of bands, right? Let's apply that same logic yeah, but- to music where... Well, if you want to, if you want to be a musician for a living, you know these days but with that, downloading and it's it's really tough. It's really tough to make it out there. One one of your only options can be taking corporate sponsorships. Like your dream isn't the responsibility of the rest of the world. If if you have to then shill for earth destroying corporations in order to make your personal dream, I think I think the analogy comes to mind. But generally, if you try to apply Jules' defense of those of those athletes to musicians that we're familiar with, it doesn't work because the musicians we know of the bands we know of don't fucking put the kind of work that an athlete puts into Olympic training. No, but, but, and they can make a buck or two. I mean, we don't do the corporate sponsorship thing. We survive. You don't have to, but I think the analogy works better. If you look at classical musicians where from a young age, your training starts and it's all the time and there's no way to make a buck off of it if you're not taking money from somebody you know mm-hmm. do classical musicians have sponsorships oh, fuck the wso all these things i guess so i get like that's yeah, all the whole thing once you With, once you're part of a without corporate sponsorship the arts that are actually reputable wouldn't ballet, would not exist ballet would not exist. uh symphony none of it would exist in right. winnipeg wouldn't who the fuck goes to it nobody does but you need it you have to have I'm it i'm going to the symphony next month you're a fucking loser <laughs> stuff's fucking elitist but that's the difference i mean that's that's elite athleticism versus fucking slobs and punk bands no it doesn't wash because the, the bands but in the first the bands place take the sponsorships anyways and they don't need to but in they, the first place they should be held to a higher account than athletes I, I think that in the first place like in order to say even be in the running for competing in the olympics if you're poor you don't really have that chance like you know, generally, because you have to put so much time into it and you have to have had, you have to have a certain level of privilege before you can be on a true Olympic path, right? So you, so you have that privilege and then in order to push it further, I, I'm not trying to, I mean, it's a good thing to have people who are quote unquote performing at a high but level I, athletically and, and, and I think there is value to society, but I don't think we can let them off the hook in terms no, of I don't think it let him off. I don't think he was even letting them no he wasn't he, he was wasn't he was but, sickened by it yes and he's talking in the American context where there is there may be literally no state or federal funding 
for Olympic athleticism. Whereas in Canada, Harper, of course, is now pouring money into it apparently because he wants to pander to this demographic that nobody in their right mind could publicly argue with. Like his, the opposition isn't going to come in there. Why are we giving money to these right. young, healthy white people? Yeah, it's a slam winning dunk us medals issue. for our. Yeah, it's this nationalist bullshit. Yeah. The last note, last note I had here is that I would have liked to have uh, heard more about potential terrorist threats against Russia in, in terms of origins with regards to Chechnya. I don't know very much about Chechnya, but it's what you always hear about, you know, when people are talking about he mentioned uh, it contemporary conflicts in Russia, they talk about Chechen rebels and what it, you know, I don't really know a lot about the history there. I don't know. I would like to have heard more. You were standing in the next room. You could have just jumped in and asked the question. I should have. Well, maybe next episode we can get Doka Umarov on here and he can answer your questions That's for you. That's a great idea. Do you think he's on Skype? He might be dead, so we'll get the Ouija board out. Ooh, another Ouija board episode. All right, check the show notes, not only for Jules' bibliography, but also for the Palermo pizza commercial in which Jules sold his soul. Check out that hair. You know, I rarely watch uh, documentaries anymore, especially ones pertaining to subject matter that is disturbing or upsetting. Did you know that? Uh, Do you know I why know I rarely watch them anymore? Because they upset and disturb me. And I don't want people upset and disturbed in my household. No. Because it upsets and disturbs this household. Right. So I avoid them because I know what people are capable of. I know what the system does and I know how people treat animals and I know how people treat women and all this shit. So why would I fucking watch them? That's a great question. So I did last week. Oh, good. I went and watched a string of them like a fucking idiot. Now my house is upset and disturbed. (laughs) Yeah, I went and watched fucking Blackfish. Well, that was great. That really (laughs) brightened my day and made me feel really good about people. And then I went and watched fucking the act of killing have you heard of the act uh, of killing oh god oh god <laughs> so you haven't seen as far as a film goes that's probably the most twisted truly twisted film i've seen Not that I'm naive to the potential inhumanity of people towards other humans at all, but to see it manifest itself in such a fucking surreal, comical, grotesque form was as if I were watching the most insane nightmare of all time. Yeah, it seems what you see in the movie, the the interviews and the reenactments... It's, I think you said to me, it seems it's too unreal not to be real. Like yeah. if you were to, if, if you were, if this were to be a fictitious movie, you'd be like, that's so ridiculous. Yeah. It's so stupid. It's almost, now that you say that, it's almost like as if, if Noam Gonick made a movie about uh, the Suarto <laughs> regime for real, you know? Yeah. It's like, it would yeah. be like, what? The, it's a dizzying nightmarish. What the hell is going on here? fucking movie yeah but it's real all of it's real and the thing was there was no graphic violence except that retold by the perpetrators of 
of mass killings yeah. against alleged quote unquote communists in Indonesia right. throughout the sixties and seventies and eighties. Yeah. And it didn't seem like it's outside of the out of the norm. No. In Indonesia. It seems like it's part of the, the it's, culture. It's, it's, yeah, it's a mainstream accepted Is it mainstream? Is it mainstream? Or is it, well, or is it, when, or is it guess, close enough to mainstream that it's prevalent? It's prevalent, yeah. I mean, when the, when the vice president of the country is yeah. glad-handing with men who are who everyone knows are mass murderers. And gangsters. And gangsters. Extortionists. Yeah, so I guess if people have no idea what the movie, movie is about, maybe they're a little confused right now, but you should just see the movie. It's a, very briefly, it covers what is called a, a great purge basically of communists in Indonesia starting in 1965 where they say up to like a million people were killed like just executed literally like in the street not not even rounded up by the government or put on trial for treason or put in prison or anything just slaughtered um, in the name of eradicating communism which is language you hear a lot in the in the movie which is interviewing people who perpetrated the crimes and who are seemingly proud of it, though not always, and who have been asked to remake their own movie, which recreated what they did. Um, and it was made done by the filmmaker at the request of the families of people who were killed in the purge. And in, in order to expose in the, in the words of the killers, what they did, and I think it's brilliant in that way because it's not it's not someone pointing fingers at someone and making accusations. It's the people themselves admitting it, owning it, and showing just how fucking twisted they are or especially how they have how twisted they have become because of what they have done. I found it an extra bit disturbing because we've re- received letters from young people in Indonesia who've written to us in the past 10 years saying, you know, without a return address on their envelope, telling us about how they are under threat because they're identified as communists and they can't go in the street. Their friends are disappearing. And I, I always just thought, really, even today, are you sure that's happening today? You know, I, I didn't know. I had some doubt in my mind. And now seeing this movie, I can't even imagine uh, presenting yourself to your community as anything other than part of the the existing order for fear of fucking being killed in the streets. Yeah. You know, when we first discussed this, I think we both agreed that as disturbing and powerful as this film was, it would have been better to have more context provided about the complicit U.S. and CIA support of what was happening at the time as well, because they were well aware of what was happening. They were supportive of the Suharto regime. We actually argued about it. We argued a little bit about it, yes. Yeah, ultimately, that is not what the documentary is about. It is about the nature of evil and the nature of humanity. But regardless... we both agreed, we both agreed after a long, protracted, violent argument that it would have helped, especially Western audiences, to not externalize this right. or to to otherize it otherize it not to otherize it to this strange alien place on the other side of the planet right and then lo and behold <gasps> tweet tweet what's the tweet sound 
Um, woo-hoo. 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 Lo and behold, woo-hoo. there's a tweet from director, director of the act of killing Joshua Oppenheimer. He's calling for the U.S. to officially uh, recognize their complicity in the mass murders in Indonesia in 1965. Right. He's arguing to give proper context. Yes. To the the backdrop of how this all came yeah. to be in the first place, which quite, is quite possibly due to reaction that has come out after the documentary was released. Who knows? Yeah, because part of our argument was like it was only mentioned once in the movie. Yeah, it was well, just we, a quick on screen at the beginning. We felt it should have been revisited. Yeah, over and over through the movie to to make it less like a surreal nightmare and right. more grounded in in our Western reality, but. In what interest would it be of the U.S. to admit tacit approval of the slaughter? It would be in, in, in none of their interest. There's, it won't happen. It won't happen. Hmm. I'm more hopeful than you. Are you? No. Here's a quote that I think summarizes what he is. This is, this is part of his, uh, his statement or press release calling for U.S. recognition. He says, 50 years is a long time to not call a genocide a genocide. If we want to have a constructive and ethical relationship with Indonesia moving forward, we have to acknowledge the crimes of the past, and we have to acknowledge our collective role in supporting those crimes, in participating in those crimes, and ultimately in ignoring those crimes. So I think that is a... Yeah, that's what was missing from the film. Yes. That statement. Yeah. There's also an interesting note here in this. This is an article in the Jakarta Post which we will put a link to in the show notes. This is an interesting note that I wasn't aware of. It says, despite the enormity of the crime, the International Criminal Court could not try the perpetrators of the 1965 genocide as it happened before the signing of the Rome Statute that founded the court. Wow. Hmm. I was not aware of that. Perhaps that influenced the willingness of the uh, perpetrators hmm. in to the documentary to be filmed. Yeah. Act of killing. Rent it tonight. Gather the family around the fireplace. Do uh, do up some popcorn. Do up some popcorn. I like to put on uh, nutritional yeast flakes, um, some earth balance melted, and a little bit of maple syrup. With some human blood. With some human blood, yes. And then you'll be prepared to watch the act of killing. Delicious. And then you'll never let your family out of your house ever again. Chris, do you remember several episodes back when, in fact, over a year ago, I think, when we spearheaded, we launched an international campaign, a boycott campaign against SodaStream. Single-handedly, Escape Velocity Radio sent their stock into a free fall with our pronouncement that you owned a SodaStream and I didn't like it. You remember that? You know as well as I do anything past one month does not exist in my mind. Yeah. SodaStream, I guess, has a fondness for Super Bowl antics because at, at the time we were discussing how their ad had been had to be modified on the previous Super Bowl, 2013, because it was considered offensive to Coke and Pepsi right. directly. But then we talked about the real controversy being that SodaStream is a corporation that operates out of an illegal settlement in the West Bank. Right. And that there was an international boycott going on. So this Super Bowl, the controversy was that famous actress 
Scarlett Johansson had tagged on to be a spokesperson for SodaStream and was going to debut in an ad at the Super Bowl. And there was a kerfuffle because she is also a celebrity ambassador or something. For Oxfam. For Oxfam. International humanitarian. Whose position is that the settlements are illegal. Yes, they have a, they have a strong anti-settlement position. Or they did. And they support boycotting products made uh, in the settlements. Uh, and then there was, so there was a little bit of a fracas mm-hmm. around that. And she subsequently left her position. At I don't Oxfam. know whether... At Oxfam. At Oxfam, yes. So I guess there could be some debate about, you can't fire me, I quit. I don't right. know. Right, so she's still shilling for SodaStream, but under the auspices of uh, employment of Palestinians benefits the Palestinians. Yeah, we can't, in order to achieve peace, we need to have a dialogue. And what better way to have a dialogue than have disempowered Palestinians and ownership Israelis working right next to each other. Which is an appealing thought on the surface, even when I think I it, the last time we had this discussion, there was some allure for me, I think. Right. And But was quickly dispelled by... You mean because you need a job? I need a job. And you're hoping you pass a Palestinian. There. But arguments that echo the sentiments of South African corporations that were uh, benefiting from apartheid mm-hmm. and making the same argument about the boycott against the uh, white supremacist government at the time. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's akin to me walking down the street with a firearm, coming into your house and saying, I live here now. However, I am thinking about starting a web development company in your house I will give you a job. I know you're getting kind of excited for this now, mm. aren't you? I will give you a job paying you $5 an hour and you can be my code monkey. And isn't that a step that we can take to reconcile this whole thing where I just barged into your house with a gun and held you hostage? Yes. It is actually, isn't it? Yeah. I think I'm turning my whole thinking around on this. We'll, we, you know, we'll put a link in the show notes to uh, some of the coverage. Electronic Intifada had some good coverage of this whole mm-hmm sort of stream Scarlett Johansson thing. The reason I bring it up is because we also touched on last time that we talked about the BDS movement. We touched on Norman Finkelstein. who's was a academic author of several books about Israel, Palestine. And uh, what we didn't talk about is how Finkelstein somewhat famously uh, lost his position teaching at DePaul university during his, his bid for tenure uh, at which he was, supported by most of the members of the committee, but there were a handful who opposed uh, his bid because of his attacks on some strongly uh, pro-Israel Zionist authors like Alan Dershowitz Mm -hmm. and uh, Eli Weasel, Benny Morris and others. And uh, the dean of the college agreed with the dissenting tenure board members, and he was uh, subsequently denied tenure amidst a whole bunch of protests and active campaigning against him by Alan Dershowitz. Mm -hmm. So since then, he's kind of dropped off the radar for a long time, not before getting into more hot water, this time with the BDS movement, the the pro-Palestinian boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, because he is a vocal critic Mm -hmm. of BDS as a tactic for a settlement in Israel-Palestine. So basically, he's fallen out with everyone mm-hmm. and uh, fall off the radar. But uh, there was an interview published with him just a couple weeks ago. So this is an interview on the Urban Times website. Mm-hmm. An alienated Finkelstein discusses his writing, being unemployable, and Noam Chomsky. You read this thing? I did. Yeah. There are a couple of things that struck me. One that I thought was really interesting 
was when he's talking about teaching. He's talking about how he misses being a teacher, right? Because he was he was a university professor for years, and uh, he talks about it as a, a personal and professional failure that he feels bitterness about right. every day. No longer being able to teach, yeah, because he is, as he says, essentially unemployable. But he talks about how he thinks it's important as a teacher to separate your politics and advocacy from the act of teaching because you're trying to teach people critical tools how to think you're not just trying to imbue them with a worldview or give them an opinion on a particular topic which i thought was i thought was pretty good because he i think maybe a lot of people who've read his stuff or seen his talks might think that uh right you would assume that in his classes he's teaching how to how to put on a suicide vest yeah, he's teaching about the occupation at all times. Right. Yeah, because it's his singular, single-minded yeah. focus in his but work. But in fact, in fact, he's not. Yeah, or wasn't, or wasn't. Yeah. Fuck, I felt bad for the guy reading the whole interview. Like mm-hmm. he's done, especially his books are just so meticulous, and they feel incontrovertible. You know, when you're reading them, especially when he's kind of taking down in very detailed manner, taking down other people's work. You know, showing where sources are misattributed and how things are fraudulent. And I don't know, it's just such careful research. And now he's just, fuck, he's been, he's been fucked by his position, you know? Yeah. Being such a vocal critic of Israel and of the pro-Palestinian movement. It's, uh, yes, it reminds one very much of the Ward Churchill situation. Remember Ward Churchill? Is any coincidence that both Ward Churchill and Norman Finkelstein disappeared from the public eye once g7 records folded <laughs> interesting are we part of a conspiracy I think howard zinn also died didn't he after we stopped the record uh, he did he did oh boy what hath we wrought we wrought the world? yeah but war churchill's a very good parallel to this story it's true he temporarily became possibly the most famous man in america yeah after 9-11 after 9-11 in his For little eichmann's his article entitled the chickens coming home to roost yes where he essentially justified the attacks on the uh the world trade center towers yeah justified might be a strong word but or explained explained explained, explained and tersely and, and in the tone of someone who has spent his life telling the United States that this is coming if we yeah. don't stop killing their children. Yeah. This, it's going to blow back in our faces. And then it does. And he said, I, his article was, and I told you so, you fucking idiots. Yeah. And he also, he kind of refused to condemn it as well. Yeah. Well, so. on, if you look at it just from a geopolitical standpoint, yeah. yeah, it was, what can you do? Fucking America constantly bombs civilian populations, always has. Yeah. So... What was the fucking difference, really? So he put out this essay, and it actually wasn't. It, it took a it took a few years before uh, I think the right wing media and some right wing bloggers kind of picked up on it. They found it all of a sudden. Maybe maybe a couple years. Couple years, maybe. Again, Churchill University professor mm-hmm. um, in Colorado, Boulder. Yeah. Then this ended up being a whole thing at his university it led to there were all these academic misconduct charges plagiarism in some of his books he was basically just incredibly scrutinized by those who wished to completely destroy him mm-hmm. all of these accusations about him not being quote unquote an indian and uh there were whole websites dedicated to just basically trying to destroy him mm-hmm. it went to court and in the end 
he was actually he was acquitted he was the, acquitted of the charges of plagiarism because they had no base yeah yeah after a lengthy investigation yeah but um, the damage had been done well and the judge ruled that not to get too far into it here but the judge ruled that although he was acquitted the regents at the university were essentially immune from being held accountable for what they did in driving him out of right. the university based on i don't know some sort of case law or, or something of course there's no mainstream media coverage of what happens no. after the fact so you bring this up because churchill who fell off the scene after all of this for for many years publicly anyway uh there's a interview in counterpunch counterpunch.org interview with joshua frank that's kind of catching up with him you know what's what's he been doing how what has happened in the protracted legal battle um but it's also pretty revealing him talking about the ins and outs of how i think there's, it's a there's a commentary on the state of academia in the united states uh in this interview with him the support that he did and did not get from mm. uh different institutional organizations that are supposed to defend and protect academics uh, in universities in the united states yeah i mean i guess it's like anything else people people are afraid of power and they are subservient to power and they don't stand up for others they don't stand up for others and the people who speak out are removed from the positions where people can hear them Mm -hmm. so you can have free speech you're just not allowed to have anybody hear you yeah you can you can talk all you want when you have a tiny platform that's what she said so yeah those are those are a couple of good interviews worth checking out check the show notes we will we will put those links in the show notes great So before we close out the show, Chris, mm-hmm. before we close out episode 18, mm-hmm. still can't believe it. 18. It's crazy. It's 18. You can drink in Manitoba now. Before we go, before we go for this episode, yeah. we should mention that we we have finally, after some contemplation, some listener requests, we have set up a facility. Wait, 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 wait. There have been listener requests. Listeners were requesting to donate money? Yes. I do not make that up. The fuck is wrong with you people? Hey, oh, they know something oops. good. Yep, yep. You're supposed to compliment them. But way to go. Not people. insult them. <laughs> Thank you. We have finally set up a facility on our website for you, the listener. Should you wish to support us financially, you have the ability to do so. So you can go to our website. We've been so generous as to provide a way for you to give us money. Yes. That's what you're saying to them. That's what I'm saying to them. So you can donate, you can make a one-time donation, or you can set up a monthly donation. But Chris, I think we should also make it clear that yes. this is not a way to curry nope. favor nope, nope, nope. or to buy undue influence nope. in Escape Velocity Radio. Not going to happen. Not we on my watch. Won't bow down to your corporate overlords that are pulling the strings of your little donations. Never. Doesn't matter how much you donate. Uh uh-uh. uh. You want to donate, what, $50? No. <laughs> $100? Nope. $500? <laughs> $20,000? There is no way that you will buy any influence. Well, the 20000 No. Can, no way at all. Maybe make an exception for that. No way that you can buy us. Thanks for tuning in for episode 18 of Escape Velocity Radio. The show is produced, recorded, and edited by Vladimir Putin. We want your feedback. Email us at feedback at Escape Velocity Radio or leave us a voicemail on Skype at username Escape Velocity Radio. 
To join the generally non-existent discussion about this episode or to check out the show notes, which includes Jules Boykoff's hair, please visit our website at escapevelocityradio.com or palermopizza.org. And if you're not already, please subscribe to the show in iTunes and also rate and review the show on iTunes or sign up for an email list to be notified when each new episode is available. You can also follow us on Twitter with the other six people, Facebook with the other 12 people, and SoundCloud with me. Those links and our email sign-up form can be found on our website at escapevelocityradio.com. To take us out, this is Greg McPherson with 1995.